You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. Sitting alongside, as always, from USA Today and MMA Junkie, it's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How, how was your weekend? Well, you were you were with me. I was kind of sick this weekend. That's right. Yeah, I went over to your house. You were watching uh, UFC 186 on the on the Fight Pass live stream. For those people who don't know, uh, you had a you didn't listen to the Breakfast of Champions audio extra. I get over there. You've got a blanket folded over your knees. That's right. Like an like an old man, and you couldn't get the uh, the streaming to work. Got couldn't get your Apple TV to work. I had the blanket over my knees and the the space heater like just like six inches away from me, cowering uh, on the couch, shivering and, and ill and in a, just a bitter struggle with technology. Let me tell you something. I don't ever want to do that again. No, I, that was shitty, actually. That was, that was the, a shitty experience. The Apple TV uh, live stream of UFC 186 was bad. Yeah. One of the worst streaming experiences I've ever had. Well, and I'm, I know people are going to be like, oh, you know, it's your internet connection or whatever. And they're going to, you know, insert Montana joke here because uh, I know that's how people do. And I will point out that I watch HBO Go and Netflix and shit like that all the time via the same Apple TV device. And there's never any problems. Uh, that was just... Just not an ideal way to watch fights, especially after you paid sixty damn dollars to do it. You notice how they don't give you the, you know, when you buy it off through Dish Network, you at least get the option to do HD or regular D, and that is sometimes my form of protest when I feel like a pay-per-view card that I have to watch for work is not really worth paying for, but I have to do it anyway. No, to hell with you. I'm gonna watch it in SD. Just right. just to stick it to the man a little bit. Because the, the guy going through your bill at the cable company, he'll see that you did that, and he'll think, oh, look at this guy. This yeah. guy's no sucker. Yeah. This guy bought the pay-per-view, but he only got it in SD. That's right. This guy knows what's up. He's not going to pay the extra. He's just going to get by, teeth gritted with regular D. When he looks through the the, the records, of the, which I assume is just one long paper readout of everybody's pay-per-view purchases, and he will he will nod in begrudging respect at my choices. Uh, how are you feeling now? Are you over it? Are you better? Because like that night, if you would have had, like you were one package of Werther's Originals away from me <laughs> suggesting that we fill out a living will for you, where most of your personal items were left to me. I'm much better. I wouldn't say I'm at 100%, but I'm much better now. Thank you for your concern. Good. I'm glad you're doing better. Uh, we got a lot to talk about this week. Uh, some breaking news, perhaps, as we sit here and record, so we'll have to keep one eye on what's going on down in Albuquerque. But uh, three rounds, as usual, this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Demetrius Johnson. Uh, he, he fought. He won. Yeah. And in round number two, so what if Quentin Rampage Jackson's UFC career ends with a tepid cakewalk against Fabio Maldonado that probably almost nobody watched? Would that be better or worse than if he'd not fought at UFC 186 at all? And in round number three, 
I don't know about any car wreck involving John Jones, but on Twitter on Sunday afternoon, I can damn sure confirm an ugly hours long train wreck. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes from Charles Montgomery, who pulls the rare back-to-back co-main event podcast listener mail appearance. That is rare. And notes here that he has dropped the Cyclone moniker. That was quick. Yeah. Is that all it took was just a little bit of a gentle ribbing from us? A little peer pressure from us. Because Suddenly, the Cyclone is no more. I thought the Cyclone was pretty cool. It was a good nickname, I yeah. thought, Having knowing nothing else about tra- Charles Montgomery. I feel like we need to hear more about what happened there. Yeah, maybe, it was, maybe he had a bad, a bad experience. I mean, other than having his, his <laughs> nickname made fun of by us. He writes, Ben Askren looked like a pissed off drunk guy trying to demonstrate his much talked about but never actually verified high school wrestling ability on his ex-wife's Zumba instructor at, U- at 1FC26 or whatever the hell it was. In both the fight and the analogy, nobody came out a winner. Now see, now I'm, I see why Charles Montgomery got on in back-to-back weeks. Cause that's too good. That's, that's too a, good not to use. That's a good email. And he finishes it off with discuss yeah so uh yeah ben Askren. what do you do fight to a no contest that's right some nameless guy that he was facing over there at one fc yeah uh, after an eye poke got a little eye pokey yeah you know and this i isn't this exactly what you thought would be like the the worst case scenario maybe for ben Askren? is not even like he'd go over there and lose in one fc to to somebody that you never heard of uh but that his situation was precarious enough that all it would take would be like one kind of bad performance or one like not so great or just weird outcome like this. And suddenly a little air is out of that balloon. Is it not? Oh yeah, man. If you are going to play the part in this scenario with the UFC where you are the outcast and the, the welterweight that the, the public at large, or at least some of the public views as being a man who's been wronged and unfairly, barred from competition because the uh, evil powers that be don't appreciate your style or your attitude or whatever it is, then like the only thing that you absolutely need to do to hold up your end of the bargain is to go on being really, really damn good. Yeah. That's the only way this works. Like if you go over to one FC and you are mediocre or a disaster happens and you lose a fight, uh, that's terrible. And like to go get involved in, in a weird, uh, no contest, a situation without any real genuine result. Like it's going to undermine Ben Askren's case as a high caliber welterweight who deserves to be competing at the highest level for at least a little while. Maybe he comes back, uh, whips this guy's ass in the rematch or whatever they're going to do. And then goes about as Ronda Rousey would say, his merry way, uh, continuing to make everybody else look foolish. Then he, you know, he regains that stature. Uh, but this is definitely the kind of thing you want to avoid if you're him. Yeah. Well, and I think also the, it underscores kind of the problem with when you're fighting over there, an organization like one FC where, Hey, you might be happy with the money he's making and everything. But when it's a series of opponents who nobody really has super high regard for, uh, you can't afford anything but absolutely jumping up and down on their heads over and over again. You know, if you if you have one that comes out a little bit disappointing, then people are going to use that as evidence that like, well, then you, you definitely don't belong in the UFC against those guys. And I think clearly he does. I mean, just, you know, just by looking at some of the other people who end up in the UFC. But yeah, not a not a great uh, weekend to work there for Ben Askren. 
You know what I can say in his favor, though, is that I'm certain that he's not on performance-enhancing drugs. Because you see Ben Askren, talented athlete that he is, and he looks like you would think a pretty in-shape normal dude should look. He's not out there looking like uh, the ultimate warrior with Ben Askren's head photoshopped on top of it. He's looking like a normal dude. Not a ton of vascularity, I guess is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) I I hope that he finds some way to put that on like his resume, like the quote from Chad Dundas. I feel absolutely certain Ben Askren is not on performance-enhancing drugs. Yeah, anyone can use that. I just blurbed that for him. (laughs) Next question this week comes from Michelle from Sarasota. Well, is this uh, one of a rare female listener, or is this like a French-Canadian name or something? Could be a French expat living yeah. in, in Sarasota. Let's assume that it's like our third female listener and welcome. Welcome, welcome Michelle. I will avoid any sort of gendered modifier here. Michelle writes, <laughs> what of Sarah Kaufman, Ben and Chad? I would like, I, I want to like her because she's a hardworking and, and good woman's fighter who doesn't play the UFC game of trying to dress up all sexy. But now she's effect, effectively, if not officially, lost three of her last five fights and only her two only recent wins have been over Leslie Smith. She's a former champion who hasn't yet turned 30, but are we pretty much done here? I don't think we're done here. I don't think we're done. Misha Tate obviously goes out on the UFC 186 prelims and loses to Alexis Davis by an armbar uh, early. Sarah Kaufman does that. Misha Tate does not. Do oh, that. yeah, no. I was just a. Uh, I was looking at the story about Sarah Kaufman maybe being distracted by Misha Tate right yeah. before we started. No, I, I so, saw that one. A little bit of a slip there on yeah, my part. There it is. Don't worry, though. I was right Sarah here. Kaufman loses to Alexis Davis when, when there was on the only UFC. One set of uh, That's when I carried you. 186 prelims via armbar earlier in the second round. Uh, the emailer, Michelle, makes a good point. Uh, Sarah Kaufman lost her last strike force fight back in 2012 uh, to someone you may have heard of, Ronda Rousey. Uh, and then that kind of begins... Uh, a portion of her career where she doesn't have a ton of success. She beat, she's beat Leslie Smith twice. Uh, she lost a split decision to Jessica. I, but had that turned over, um, after Jessica, I tested positive for marijuana and then now the loss to Alexis Davis. So kind of a down stint, I guess you would say here for Sarah Kaufman, but, uh, I wouldn't pull the plug on it. No, well, you know, and one of the reasons why I wouldn't pull the plug is I thought she looked really good in that fight right up until she lost. Like, she came out there in the first round, was kind of taking it to Alexis Davis, looked really aggressive and really sharp, and it looked like even Alexis Davis was kind of going through a little bit of like, oh, I I did not expect this Sarah Kaufman tonight, uh, and was in a little bit of shock early on. And then, you know, she just, I think what happened was when she wound up uh, in that mount, she it was almost as if like you could see her not super immediately taking the grappling game of Alexis Davis as seriously as she should have like trying that that escape uh at first like trying to to work the arm through where you're kind of just begging to get triangled a little bit um she was putting herself in these kind of vulnerable situations and you got the sense that like you can see it sometimes when people they they hit the mat in a situation where they feel like Okay, that was almost like a fluke. I shouldn't shouldn't even be here. Screw this. I'm going to get right out of this. And they kind of rush through it, make some mistakes, and 
you know, it's like you, you make one mistake, you make another mistake on top of that. And the next thing you know, the situation is way more serious than you thought it was. And Alexis Davis did a good job of capitalizing on that. I mean, she, she looked like she was going to get that triangle choke. Couldn't get that. She did a, a, had a great transition to that arm bar. And then it's like, okay, you're stuck. And it just seemed like Sarah Kaufman didn't respond to the threats as quickly as she needed to. But it didn't seem like it was just because, you know, she sucked or was old and slow or anything. I mean, it seemed like quite the opposite right up until that point. Yeah, uh, Michelle from Sarasota's point, I feel like, is also well made, though. Uh, Sarah Kaufman seems like the kind of person that you want to see good things happen for. She seems like a very genuinely good person and nice person uh, and, and a, a smart person and certainly an athlete that, that is going to kind of go her own way, as is uh, uh, referenced in the email. It's not like she's trying to conform to this sexy image that the UFC seems to want to portray for its women's fighters. She's just going to go out there and like do her own thing and be herself and maybe not worry about that aspect of the image part of it. Like she's gotten a little bit more aggressive in terms of trying to call people out on social media recently, which I feel like might be a nod to the idea that she realizes that she needs to be a little bit more active or a little bit more do a little bit better job promoting with the promotional aspect, I guess you would say. Uh, but at the same time, uh, she does seem like a, a good and like mild mannered Canadian person. And at one point she was 15 and one in her career and was the, the, uh, uh, you know, fought Ronda Rousey for the strike force women's bantamweight championship. And it seemed like, you know, she, when, when she came over to the UFC, like she was probably going to be one of the better women's bantamweights over there and and since then it's been a little bit of a rough ride for her so in that regard like i feel like you know there is some some worries here yeah you know and honestly if there was a, a worry about her getting cut by the ufc or something i would think it would be the combination of uh you know losing a couple and being kind of outspoken like she doesn't seem to worry too much about any of that stuff and i i can see why because if you look at when she's gotten the most attention in her career, it wasn't even necessarily just when she had a title. It was when she was speaking out a little bit uh, and, you know, when she kind of called out Strikeforce for not putting a women's title fight on a real fight card for sticking out on Strikeforce Challengers like their little Friday night uh, Showtime deal that was kind of their little brother uh, show to the real Strikeforce shows. And, you know, she got what she wanted there. She, she got a, like a little elevation of status. And I think that that's kind of been her thing. Like she realizes, you know, she's not going to go out there and play the like uh, Misha Tate or Ronda Rousey, like dressing up in, uh, in, in high fashion wear, uh, getting attention that way. And I think, you know, I kind of have her on my own little mental list of like, you know how you have a little list of like, when you need to call fighters to ask them about something and you're thinking like, who won't bullshit me? Like who won't just tow the UFC line? Who will actually give me an honest answer for what they honestly think and won't be scared about getting in trouble with the UFC or getting in trouble with somebody else? Um, she's on that list, at least for me. Tim Kennedy also on that list. Uh, but that can also get you in trouble, especially if you lose a couple and then the UFC decides like, you know what? We'd keep you around if we didn't feel like you're also kind of a pain in the ass. So that that is a concern. Next question this week comes from Tom in Liverpool. He writes, with the UFC moving the goalposts with the Reebok pay structure, is it time for us to finally see the method to Benson Henderson's I will fight anyone at any weight, any time madness? With 13 UFC fights to his name, is this a scramble to move himself to the next pay level and did Benson know more than he let on? Uh, I don't know about any of that, but the UFC, uh, the, the actual terms of the new Reebok sponsorship 
uh, pay scale came out this past week, or at least what we think they're going to be from the Boston Herald. About that, though. Okay. Uh, I was actually I, I was working on something about this today because I, I saw this right, uh, and the and I contacted uh, the UFC and asked them like you know because here's the thing the Boston Herald they they quote an email talking about you know the UFC like that an email sent out by Lorenzo and and signed by Lorenzo and Dana talking about here are the terms kind of the thing but um, the the actual numbers they do not tie to the email. They say that they 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 uh, learn the numbers kind of separately from okay. that email. Okay. Um, the UFC says that they never put any numbers in that email, but their numbers, what they say, um, they say it's expected to roughly approximate five thousand dollars for fighters with zero to five UFC fights, eight thousand to ten thousand for five to ten UFC fights, twelve thousand to fifteen thousand for eleven to fifteen fights, and eighteen thousand to twenty thousand. For 16 to 20 fights. And when I asked the UFC about these numbers, especially about the, the kind of range showed here, like what's what's up with the range? Is it like, does it depend where on that that scale you, you fall? And they say those numbers aren't accurate. Now, they could just be saying that, and who knows exactly what the numbers will be. Um, but it, it was an interesting thing to see those numbers at first because you think like, okay, if you're a first-time fighter in the UFC, $5,000 uh, in like – sponsorship money and especially knowing like guaranteed money like not like you don't have to run around and scrounge up sponsors you don't have to spend the three months after your fight trying to get paid you'll be paid within 10 days uh of the fight according to their, their policy you know that seems like not a bad deal but then you start to think about some of the other people like you know somebody who can have like 10 fights 10 or 11 fights like somebody like misha tate or somebody who when you add up her strike force and ufc fights which you got like 10 or 11 um, something like that, and you put her and you tell her like, okay, you're making twelve thousand dollars. I think she could probably do better uh, on an open market. Yeah, overall, I thought that the I think that that you're right that for like five thousand dollars, if you're a person who's making your UFC debut and you're fighting on Fight Pass and you're not going to have an easy time scrounging up sponsors because they know not a lot of people are going to see their name on the ass of your shorts, like that's probably a good deal. Well, I was kind of struck when all of these numbers came out that they seemed kind of low to me all all the way across the board. Like if the if the uh, the idea of the Reebok sponsorship deal is to try to 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 you know make life better for fighters in what it has been a depressed sponsor market, like um, it's not like you're dealing with life changing numbers here, really. Uh, you know, especially when you consider like the, whatever the million millions of dollars, the, the entire deal was worth, um, $5,000 would be nice. It's not going to be a life changing sum for anybody. And then you, like you said, for somebody who's up there around 16 to 20 fights, if you're a high profile UFC person, um, I would hope that you had made more than $20,000 per fight for sponsorships. Although maybe in, in more recent years, that wasn't, that wasn't the case. Yeah. But I mean, I think like, uh, Somebody like um, like Michael Bisping, for example, you know, who is still a really well known guy, um, and he, you know, I don't think any anywhere he falls on this scale would make him as much money as he's making in sponsorships per fight now. Like I think he'd take a big hit. Like uh, you know, even if he's even, like even the guys who are like in the top tier there, like I think a guy like Bisping can probably go out there and make $50,000 a fight from sponsorships even now. And, you know, some of those guys, like you can say like, okay, they're going to be able to hold on to their sponsorships outside of uh, 
fight night, you know, like if they can find a way. And you know, I'm sure some sponsors will try that and they'll, they'll see what they can do there. And maybe they'll have to get a little more creative. And some of the fighters, I'm sure they're going to want to be associated with. But for a lot of those people, it is going to start to seem like, well, this the, the juice is maybe not worth the squeeze here. Uh, and so they are going to take a, a financial hit. And I, you can't expect them to be too happy about that. I mean, as for the question, like with, with Benson Henderson, like, I, I, which is, I think was the jumping off point here from Tom in Liverpool, who says that with 13 UFC fights to his name, um, does this, you know, him trying to fight all the damn time move him up to the next pay grade? I mean, I think even for a guy like Benson Henderson, 13 USC fights, that would put him, what, around 15 grand at the, the high end? If, again, these numbers are right, which the USC says they're not, um, I think that would be way less than what he's getting per fight now. Yeah, I would be surprised that he was making less than that, although I think the overall point is an interesting one, and will the, and that is, will this, you know, the new scale of how these sponsorships are going to be doled out, uh, influence more people to take on a an anytime, anyplace, anywhere, fight a lot mentality, which I think is possible. Like if you know for a fact that it's going to move you up a pay grade, uh, a lot of people are willing to do a lot of different things to to increase their their take home money. I don't know, but I mean, if the pay like if you look at the difference between the pay grades, and again, these are what the USC says are not the right numbers, but it's like if you're talking about like okay, I'm in the bracket where I'm making fifteen grand, and then next one up is 18 to 20 grand. That's not, even if you're going from 15 to 20 grand, like if you have that many fights in the UFC, just the, like your win bonus is going to be so much more than the $5,000 difference. Like that's not going to motivate you to do anything differently. Uh, that, that extra five grand, like it's not going to motivate you to take a fight that is risky. Um, because you know, your, your win bonus is probably like, you know, four or five times that at least, like, why would you jeopardize that? Uh, just to make the extra five grand in sponsorship money. That wouldn't really make a whole lot of sense. Last question this week comes from David James Clark. He writes, is it just me or has Michael Bisping somehow become more likable in his later years? I've never had many positive feels for the dude throughout his career. And I admit I was one of the guys who chuckled heartily at all those internet memes of him getting knocked out by Dan Henderson. Hey, some of those are pretty good, but suddenly here he is at 36 and I find myself rooting for him to beat Lord Clarence Byron on Saturday. Is that weird? And why do I feel this way? Help me out guys. I don't know that that's weird. I kind of like have the same feeling about Michael Bisping these days. Now that he's graduated to the, to the legends circuit, you might say like he's getting up there in years, uh, even though he declared defiantly in his post fight interview after his win over CB Dalloway this past weekend, that he will have that belt. I don't know that anyone outside the Bisping family is really buying that. Uh, and I saw, you know, I do, I guess have more positive and or even sentimental feelings about Michael Bisping now, whereas earlier in his career, he just seemed like kind of a brash guy who uh, had maybe figured out that he would make more money by trying to induce people into really wanting him to put to punch him in the face. Um, now, like, I don't know, man, when he when he was out there fighting CB Dalloway and CB Dalloway kind of dropped him early with that left hook. I had some sad feelings come over me like that. I didn't want to see him lose this, this fight to a guy like Dalloway who has kind of jumped up into the higher levels of the middleweight division, but is historically going to be a guy that has been regarded as, as like kind of mediocre. You know, I, I think that this fight uh, is the kind of thing that really makes it a lot easier to have positive feels about Michael Bisping. Cause he had to gut that one out a lot, you know I mean? that And, 
I think that the more we see of him, and especially when we see him lose sometimes and then bounce back from those losses, you like regardless of what you think about him and about his persona and personality and all that other stuff, you gotta admit, like, he's a tough dude. He doesn't go away easily. Like the the only people who beat him are the people who are really good. Uh and then he can go out there and take an ass kicking and come right back uh and get in a, a tough fight like this one and find a way to win it. Like he he you got to respect his his skills, and I think like we've seen him enough at this point that you don't get the sense that you know whatever you think of him, it doesn't seem fake. Like Michael Bisping is not doing this this stuff, this feud stuff that he gets into. I don't think that's for us as much as we once thought it was. I think it's for him. Like he seems to definitely need that, uh, and he seems like aware of it at this point. Like that he just finds himself in those kind of fights over and over again, uh, but. It seems like, I don't know, if you start to think about a, a UFC without that guy in it, without Michael Bisping showing up and doing his Michael Bisping thing, I think you'd miss him. Yeah, I feel like he seems like a quirky family member at this point. Like, he's your cousin. He's like your drunk cousin that, that like, you don't want to spend a ton of time around him. But, like, at the same time, you feel a little bit disappointed when it turns out he's not going to be at Thanksgiving. Yeah. That's kind of maybe Michael Bisping for me at this point. Yeah, because he would make things interesting. Yeah, he's walk in with that walk, the one of the most ostentatious walks in UFC history. The way Michael Bisping walks to the cage, that would that would that you know class up any Thanksgiving, I think, if he walked in like that. Well, blow blur plan on the high five. Yeah, well, you assume that that just follows him around. Yeah, you know. I assume it does. That's how entrance music works, right? I also think that there's got to be a thing where we realize, like we. We were unfair to Michael Bisping in a lot of ways as an MMA community for a long time. I think we did not give Michael Bisping his due daps uh, because we didn't like him as a as a person or because he was just like kind of abrasive. Uh, he's a better fighter than I think people ever really wanted to admit, and I think you kind of see that now. And I'll, but also, I mean, I think that like he's when he says like he's going to be champion, we're like, oh no, you're not. But like keep keep coming around, man. Like don't go away. Like, he's definitely not going to beat anybody in the, the middleweight top five, but that's because the middleweight top five is awesome right now. He's still going to beat a lot of those dudes uh, who are, like, UFC mainstays, um, which, I mean, on one hand, you almost want to feel bad for him because it does seem kind of heartbreaking. Like, he has that that unshaken ambition uh, for the top. But also, like, if you start to talk about who has profited the most off of achieving, like, the the least status in the UFC, he's one of those guys that always comes to mind. Like, never even really got a title shot, never really got close to that, other than, like, a couple number one contender fights. And still, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to be holding any benefits for Michael Bisping anytime soon. Yeah, he, but, I mean, he did. He had to work, you would think, pretty hard for everything that he got. Like, every ounce, every scrap of, of respect that he's gotten. I always wonder now if... You know, the, given that the way we treated Michael Bisping, if Michael Bisping looks at Conor McGregor and is like, what? Really? <laughs> like, we like this guy? Like, that was not my experience. <laughs> I did not have a similar experience to this. This guy gets a title shot? Huh. Weird. And he goes out and DJs. DJs a party that weekend. I don't know. That doesn't help. DJing parties does not help you. That's just my, I'm trying to, that's my, my assumption of what Michael Bisping's life is like. <laughs> I think it's he looks actually, at the internet, gets mad about Conor McGregor, and then goes out and DJs a party. Man, why isn't Sir Nigel here for this one? <laughs> well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question or comment or concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. 
That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on all the news and notes that we miss from Monday through Friday when we're not recording the podcast. It's fun. You'll like it. It's humorous. Lands in your inbox on Friday mornings. Read it while you eat your cornflakes. It's a good time. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, I have long been a supporter of Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson, the UFC flyweight champion, and to an extent, I feel like I still retain positive feelings about Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson, the UFC flyweight champion, but I also feel like some sort of tipping point was crossed this past weekend during Johnson's fight with Kyoji Horiguchi at UFC 186, where... It's like I started to understand the criticism, I guess, or like I started to look at the Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson experience and think, okay, like I could see if you didn't want to pay $60 to watch this, I understand. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to call, I'm not going to say that you're not a real fight fan. Right. Like, uh, I still like Demetrius Johnson. I think he's an amazing fighter. I think that he can be fun to watch, but at the same time, I'm not sure that Demetrius Mighty Mouse Jonathan, the product, is a huge success at this point. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the Horiguchi fight, and then maybe we can talk a little bit more about uh, the promotional aspect or the the uh, Mighty Mouse product and and what, if anything, can be done to to uh, not that I like to use expressions like this, but rebrand the Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson. Yeah, product. the rebranding part is a is a tough one to get to, uh, just because it doesn't seem like it's entirely up to him. But, I mean, I guess on one hand, I like the thing he's come around to now that we talked about before about where he's just kind of like, hey, if you don't want to watch it, fuck you. I don't really care. I'm not going to try to sell it to you. Good. You know, like I don't feel like he should try to have to sell it to us, especially because he he is so good. And, you know, he goes out there and he completely dominates Horiguchi. And while you're watching it, you're just like, all right, like I get the sense that like he's never in any danger. And I, like, right, which is amazing. Like that's what you're supposed to do when you're a fighter. That is like, amazing. That's the number one thing. I get the sense that he's never in any danger, and Horiguchi is in like a slow creeping danger. He's in the danger yes. we are all in, in that he will die. <laughs> Except eventually. that Demetrius Johnson is Father Time. Yes, is life itself. Yeah, it's a little. The the timeline is shrunk down a little bit. Um, but like you could see, like by the time he was coming back to his corner, I, I think for like after the fourth round. And the, the translation came out of his corner where they were just basically telling him, like, dig deep. Uh, you need a knockout. And they said something like, you know, that's that's the champ over there. Like, that's why he's the champ, basically. Because right. you could see in Horiguchi's face where he was like, this sucks. Right. Like, I've just been getting beat up. There's nothing really I can do about it. Like, I, this guy's stopping any attempt at offense. I try to get started. And there's still five more minutes of it left to go. Yeah. Like, and, but I, and I get, like... That is super impressive, but it's one of those things that's impressive on an intellectual level when you start to think about it. When you think about what he's doing and how well he's doing it and how he's never really screwing up um, and you're like, 
I realize my brain realizes that that is impressive. Right. And yet when I see John Jones, who we will talk about in a very different context later, throw a crazy spinning back elbow on somebody, my intellectual brain doesn't have a chance to say anything because the rest of me is going, oh, holy shit. Right. And it's a different thing. It's a different experience. Yeah. And, you know, like much of the things that make Demetrius Johnson a hard sell to MMA fans, as I think I said on the audio extra this weekend, aren't really his fault. Like he's kind of got the superfecta of factors that make him a hard sell. He's small. He's sort of unassuming and soft spoken. Like he's technically flawless, but not necessarily that fearsome. And he doesn't necessarily have any like real credible challengers. And I think the more that I think about it, and you just brought this up, I think it's it's an interesting point. The more that I that I have thought about it since UFC 186, the more I start to think that the real problem with Demetrius Johnson is that he's not fighting guys that we really know. Because, you know, you're always gonna have a trouble selling this guy who's 125 pounds and five foot three or whatever to the to the general fight watching public. But at the same time, you know, like at 145 pounds suddenly Conor McGregor comes along and, and we're all interested to watch him fight Jose Aldo. Yeah, and if Conor McGregor was 125 pounds, we'd still we'd, be, we'd, we'd love that We'd stick. still be into him. And like he would fit even more into the Lucky Charms leprechaun idea. Uh, you know, Demetrius Johnson is essentially doing kind of the same thing that George St. Pierre always did at 170 pounds and George St. Pierre faced his fair share of criticism, but at the same time watching what George St. Pierre did was more impressive than watching what what DJ does. And I think it's because the guys that George St. Pierre was doing it to were guys that had proven track records of success at the highest level. Like you watch George St. Pierre go out and flawlessly defeat Nick Diaz or Jake Shields or Carlos Condit or any of these dudes that we had watched kick other dudes asses or Matt Hughes or I mean, Matt Hughes, you know, BJ Penn. Uh, that's impressive. That was impressive to see George St. Pierre totally handle those guys. With Demetrius Johnson, we are a good bit removed now from the John Dodsons and Ian McCall, Ian McCall's of the world. Like we're into this stage where he's fighting guys like Horaguchi, who, you know, I said last week is a super tough dude and a good fighter, but he's also only 24 years old and he'd only fought on UFC TV twice before. And one of those times was on Fox sports too. So like to see Demetrius Johnson go out and just actually absolutely handle this dude is not as impressive as seeing George St. Pierre, like handle Carlos Condit. Yeah. Well, and, and that is one of the things too, where, um, I mean, I think you can look back, uh, what's his biggest win over a, Really, like, or like the biggest, the closest thing to a a well known guy, I would say, is knockout of Joseph Benavidez, right? Yeah, that was one that kind of put stuff in perspective. But it's not like he experienced a huge bump up in popularity right after that. It was, you know, it, it was a big deal for him, and it was an impressive win and everything. But it's not like, you know, the people who weren't interested in seeing him before that were suddenly more interested. In it. I think, I mean, I it seems to me like we were always looking for this one answer. And like we want to know, is it because he's too small? Right. You know, I think with it's, him, it's a confluence of factors. Yeah, I think for I sure. think it is a confluence. Like, but I also think that uh, you know, you, like when you hear Dana White talking about it, and for one thing, I'm saying like I don't give a shit if the fans are, are walking out, kind of thing. And it's like, 
okay, well, like, I guess I'm going to go ahead and interpret that as you standing behind your champion, which is good. Um, but then also saying like, well, hey, Chuck Liddell and Anderson Silva weren't always all that popular either. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a thing where Demetrius Johnson just keeps doing what he's doing and eventually the tide just turns. Like, I think that it's kind of going to stay this way unless, you know, you can get like some kind of Conor McGregor type figure at 125 pounds. And the problem is, where would he come from? Like where, and this is something that the UFC matchmaker says talked about before too, where especially with some of these lighter weight classes, uh, and they said it in the context of like, what are you going to do if one of these guys pulls out injured? Like, they're like, it's not like there's a whole bunch of good 125 pound fighters somewhere else that I can just go sign. Like I've got them all. I've got all the best guys in the world. So where would that new person to kind of put this in context for us come from? I mean, I guess they'd have to come from a higher division, but it seems like people have already done all the cutting that they're going to do for the present moment. Yeah, it's, it definitely presents a quandary. And like, I was starting to think that as this week started, what you can even do to kind of try to rehabilitate, uh, rehabilitate Demetrius Johnson's, not necessarily image, but like rehabilitate him as a draw. And like a couple of things I was thinking about were like, I kind of think you got to take him off pay-per-view at this point. Like, I feel like you have to fashion him as the UFC champion that you get to watch for free. And try to make that one of the kind of cool things about him. So he's kind of like the intercontinental champion. In the right. WWF. Like all the other champions fight primarily on pay-per-view. But you can watch Demetrius Johnson on Fox Sports 1 or Fox. And he's fought like two or three times on Fox already. So he's sort of there. But clearly like selling this dude on pay-per-view, not necessarily working. And like one of the things I was thinking about also was like, do you kind of need him to fight less in a way? Because like he's only been flyweight champion since the end of 2012 i think he won the the belt in like september of 2012 and he's already defending the title six times since then which seems like a lot to me for a ufc champion he fought three times in 2013 uh then i think just twice last year in 2014 but like like he's in a shallow division right and it kind of feels like he has run through a lot of the talent in that division and and like is is he kind of like overexposed in a way because you've got this thing where like he's beat all the guys in the top five we had him go out last weekend and fight Horiguchi at UFC 186, which was a fight nobody was really that hyped up about. And then you look at the lineup for UFC 187 next month on May 23rd. Lo and behold, who's fighting on that card but John Dodson, the dude that we actually kind of wanted to see Demetrius Johnson fight. And that makes you wonder, like, why did we even do this thing with Horiguchi? <laughs> like, if we could have just waited an extra month and had... Demetrius Johnson against John Dodson like we wanted in the first place. I don't know. Maybe the UFC thought that there was, this could be a build-up process to seeing Johnson and Dodson fight again. And I mean, It's I, possible. Do, or they just needed warm bodies to fill the 46 shows they've got or, lined up. Or that is also possible. Yeah, I don't – you know, I also feel like there's, there's this weird kind of tug-of-war going on uh, when it comes to like the perception and the arguments about Demetrius Johnson. Like now it's kind of predictable, right? Like he's going to fight. People are going to get on social media and either complain about how they don't care, like they're not watching, or they are watching and they're bored. Um, and then it seems like a lot of people in the MMA media feel like this kind of reflexive, like, we need to tell you that this dude is actually good. Like, but we, we also realize, like, we're sitting there watching it and, you know, it's not like, Anybody is they're having their hair blown back, as Chad Dundas would say, by by these performances. They're just so like solidly uh one-sided all the way across the board. But it seems like we get into this thing where it's like this kind of popular hipster opinion to be telling everybody how awesome uh Demetrius Johnson is and how you just don't appreciate him. 
which I don't know, that can be true, but I also don't think you're going to convince anybody of that. I don't think you're going to talk anybody into being entertained by something. And even though we realize that he is actually really good and, you know, like there's a point in the fight where he, it's so like autopilot. It feels like, uh, Joe Rogan and Mike Goldberg start talking about the cartoon Mighty Mouse, which neither one of them seems to accurately totally remember even. <laughs> like they're, they're exchanging like a dimly remembered snippets of childhood. Uh, and like it tells you something like this is the title fight. This is the main event. And we're just kind of drifting off into these, these ancillary conversations or like the, the awesome exchange that Lauren Murphy, uh, shared with her husband that, that she had with her husband on Twitter where she says, do you think he's a nice guy? Points at DJ. Don't know. Never met him. Uh, and then she says, speculate. Okay. Probably he is. Super engrossing fight. And yeah, that seems like that's ex- kind of exactly what we were doing as we're sitting there watching it where yeah. you're just kind of like, all right, Demetrius Johnson doing the Demetrius Johnson thing again. And then when he gets the arm bar in the last second, it almost kind of like rubs the salt in there. It like- does, and it feels like a made-up record, right? Like to say like, oh, the the latest stoppage in UFC history, like a record-breaking performance from Demetrius Johnson. Like that feels like a thing that's made up to try to inflate his greatness, Well, that which feels, I feel like works against him. It, it feels like a telling stat in a way, like the same way like – uh when I hear stats like the most takedowns in a fight or I've heard uh, the most submission attempts in a fight where it's like the fact that you have that record tells me that you're not actually as effective as you're trying to use the record. To sh- like if you have a whole bunch of submission attempts in a fight, it means they're not working. Like if you have a whole bunch of takedowns in a fight, it means like you're not finishing anybody after you get them taken down. And if you have the latest submission, I mean, it's one thing if it's like, you know, the Anderson Silva, Chael Sonnen situation where you're totally losing and you pull a submission out that very last moment. But this is one where he's absolutely dominating the guy and then just finally gets him at the very end. And you kind of like, couldn't have, you couldn't have saved us 10 minutes maybe and just done this earlier, huh? Yeah. Well, now you've got this product in this guy. I don't really know how you save it. Uh, but I think one of the, the, uh, one of the the important factors I think which goes a little bit into what we were talking about before is like you need to spend some time promoting like the other fighters in the flyweight division because if we had known who Kyoji Horiguchi was, had a better sense for how good he was before he fought Demetrius Johnson, maybe it would have been more meaningful to see Demetrius Johnson beat him, you know, as badly as he did. And now people talk about Henry Cejudo, uh, who obviously is a former gold medal wrestler and is in the flyweight division, but he's a dude who only has two fights in the UFC so far. One of them was at bantamweight. He's only got one fight in the UFC at flyweight. He's historically had a little bit of trouble making the 125 pound limit. So like, if that is a fascinating stylistic fight and that guy poses an actual threat to Demetrius Johnson, like I need, to, I think you need to spend a little time like making the public more aware of that guy before they fight because then when Demetrius Johnson beats him if he beats him like it will seem more impressive than yeah. him just beating a random Japanese dude who's a like 6 to 1 10 to 1 favorite over uh crazy thought experiment what do you say if the UFC comes out and says you know what due to just crushingly low interest we're done with the flyweight division the men's flyweight division is no more all those guys they can go fight somewhere else we'll release them from their contracts that they want or they can go up to bantamweight we tried this. It didn't work. Sorry. Yeah, it would be a bummer. And it sounds like an interesting thought experiment Experiment until you reflect that it really wasn't that long ago that the UFC tried to totally just wash its hands of lightweights. Like it tried to do that, uh, you know, many years ago now. But like uh, during the what do you, I think you would consider the modern history of the UFC that happened. So I don't know that that's totally like out of the question, but at the same time, like kind of a bummer, man, if you're going to start a division, I feel like we need to stick to it. And, uh, 
and you know make it happen especially since even i i do legitimately enjoy watching the flyweights i think that they are that they you know bring something to the table that i feel like is fun to watch i'm just not sure that it that it's ever really going to grab the fascination of the fight watching public and maybe that's you know more evidence that you kind of need to change your expectations of where you put those fights and like you know maybe the flyweight title is a thing that we see on cable tv and and fight pass and we kind of you know Make peace with that and and move forward with it. Just, just won't be happy till it's an intercontinental title. Till Demetrius Johnson is just a hundred and twenty five pound honky tonk man. Well, that's, that's what you want. That's better than losing it entirely, right? I guess. All right, let's do. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, this week my are you fucking kidding me goes out to all other professional athletes in all other professional sports who ever try to throw a punch during competition because. You look ridiculous. <laughs> and specifically, I'm talking about Jordano Ventura, the talented uh, pitcher for the Kansas City Royals who tried to take a swing at Chicago White Sox pitcher Jeff Samarja last week during a crazy brawl that those two teams had. And I say tried to take a swing because I don't know what the fuck this thing was supposed <laughs> to be. Just wrist flailing in the breeze, his elbow straight out like he's brushing his teeth, and he comes up like two feet short of his intended target. It's amazing to me that these guys who get paid millions of dollars to play sports with their bodies suddenly have the kinesthetic awareness of a bunch of eight-year-olds when it's time to throw a punch. Dudes, are you fucking kidding me? Don't throw punches at each other unless you can do it without making yourselves look like a bunch of babies trying to take your first steps. Otherwise, leave the punching to the professionals. Wow. Are you fucking kidding Just me? Just scathing. I did see that, though, and that was that was a pretty sorry Terrible. attempt at a punch. Terrible. Uh, well, Chad, this week, my are you fucking kidding me? You know, as anybody who watched UFC 186 has already, I'm, I'm going to say a name to you and you're going to recognize it. And that name, Chad, is Tommy. Right, yes. I thought you were going to say Philippe Chartier, but, you know, <laughs> go with Tommy. That's fine. Tommy is the Bud Light living champion. And my are you fucking kidding me goes out not so much to Tommy, who for all I know might be a nice guy. I hear he's a 28-year-old man from Toronto who is also a DJ. Um, in spite of that, he still could be a nice guy. My are you fucking kidding me goes out to Bud Light. How, what have you done to this man's life? You have made him an object of derision and scorn. How did they so quickly make us hate someone that we don't even know. We have no information about him except that they's somebody that they're trying to like shove down our throats. They, they took somebody and without even actually introducing him to us, made us hate him. Um, and my favorite thing to come out of this so far was I was talking to Jordan Breen from Sharedog, who was at the event and was saying how he was backstage, you know, watching the thing on TV and some PR rep or whoever comes back there to try to interest the media in, I don't know, a feature story about Tommy or whatever. Hashtag lifestyle piece. Hashtag, Hashtag Bud Light lifestyle piece. <laughs> Bud Light lifestyle piece. Um, and in trying to talk about what he's been doing since he signed this quote one week contract with the UFC, she mentioned a lot of cool things that he got to do, such as train with Anthony Pettis, who's one of his favorite fighters, and also, quote, George St. Pierre kicked a bottle off his head. What? 
And according to Jordan Breen, when she said George St. Pierre kicked a bottle off his head, the mood in the room began to turn. Are you fucking kidding me? Leave poor Tommy alone. You you tried this terrible marketing campaign, and I I fear you might have ruined the man's life. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That was one of the worst uh, marketing campaigns. Good, are you fucking kidding me? Bad marketing campaign. Thanks. Uh, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, the cruiserweights were back in action at UFC 186. Your boy Quentin Rampage Jackson defied the haters and their court injunctions, got up in there and did the damn thing against Fabio Maldonado, and it was a fight that, you know, it definitely happened. There yes, were there did. were three rounds of it. Some punching happened. Uh, everybody did their best to resist the urge to fall down exhausted, and then it was over. What the hell did we learn? Well, you knew it was going to be a special fight, Ben, when Quentin Rampage Jackson came to the weigh-in and took advantage of his one-pound allowance at a goddamn cruiser weight. <laughs> Didn't even have to make weight. Had to get down to 215. This guy comes in at 216 as just to, just to say, you know, fuck you to the entire process. Uh, let's be honest, though. Let's be fair. I thought Rampage looked a little bit better than I expected him to, which maybe is kind of a backhanded compliment, but he moved around the cage pretty well. Uh, he, his punches looked crisp and, and, you know, hard, at least for a while. He threw some kicks. He threw a damn high kick at one point, which, uh, which I think was, was unexpected and good to see. Like he looked fairly motivated. He looked like he wanted to, to prove a point against Fabio Maldonado, all of which was stuff that I didn't necessarily expect from a guy who, uh, had thought that he was fighting and then thought that he wasn't fighting and then finally did get the all clear to fight. So, you know, respect and, and props where they are deserved to Quentin Rampage Jackson. The guy that I thought had the, the most like inscrutable performance here was Fabio Maldonado. I'm not a hundred percent sure how he felt he was going to win this fight doing the things that he did because he just didn't do very much. He he landed some body shots and looked like maybe he was trying to to drag Quentin Jackson into the deep water and test his cardio, but then, like, nothing ever came of it. Like, Fabio Maldonado never shifted into second gear and kind of tried to turn up the, the heat on him at all. It just was sort of a, a slow-paced and uneventful performance by him from start to finish. First of all, I wish you could hear how low the bar sounds when you're talking about being impressed with Rampage Which, Jackson. But I mean, come on. I just spent some time, me, remember who you're talking about here, I just spent some time halfway praising Quentin Jackson on our podcast. Like, yeah, that's well, that's big of me. Praising I him? I feel like I really impressed some people here today <laughs> with my selflessness. I don't want to sound cocky. Uh, praising him for things such as seeming interested. And, like, having crisp punches and, like, throwing the occasional kick. Like, that's what you're praising him for. Which, uh, that's all better than we thought, though, right? Like, that, I understand <laughs> that the bar is low and that that's a backhanded compliment. But, like, we expected him to come in there looking like a husk. Like a withered <laughs> husk of his, his former self. And he didn't really. He looked like Rampage, albeit, like, mid-30s Rampage. And I dare I say, as dedicated and interested as we've seen him in some time. Well, okay, like, but 
okay, two things about that. For one thing, like, I didn't think that he looked, like, in his fights in Bellator, I didn't think he looked like a husk. Like, I mean, granted, like, the competition wasn't always that we fight, you know, Joey Beltran and Christian Mapumbu, but, like, he looked pretty good against Mo Lawal for the kind of fight it was, the kind of matchup it was. Like, he didn't look like a husk there. Uh, but then... Point number two is he comes out against Fabio Maldonado, which, as I said in our audio extra, I cannot imagine a an opponent more tailor-made, more just like as a setup, like softball for Rampage that the UFC gave him, thinking like, all right, here's somebody who won't move around a whole bunch, who won't really bug you with takedowns and like clinching against the fence too much. You don't have to worry about a bunch of crazy kicks or weird spinning shit. He's just going to kind of hands up boxing style, come right at you, and you're going to be able to hit the shit out of him. Here you go, Rampage. And that's exactly what Fabio, Fabio Maldonado proved to be. Um, and still, you know, like it wasn't a, a terrible showing on Rampage's part, but it, it also did look like the end of the fight was Rampage against Rampage's cardio more than anything else. Yeah, well, that's the really strange part where it seemed like you kept expecting Fabio Maldonado to try to make something happen. It was like he was waiting for the fourth and fifth rounds in a three-round fight. He just never really did anything. Well, let's talk about uh, Rampage's future now, which is still in doubt. You know, the the uh, observers and MMA media types wanted to do the normal thing after this fight where we talk about who's next and who Rampage Jackson should fight and what kind of commodity he's going to be for the UFC. But, like, it's unclear that any of that is actually going to get to happen because, you know, if you read Judge, uh, what was it, Anthony Kennedy's uh, r- ruling that allowed it, Rampage to show up and fight at UFC 186. It was not definitive, I guess you would say, on what his future will be. The the judge's ruling kind of denied Bellator its much broader claims that allowing Rampage to fight in the UFC would essentially undo all Bellator contracts, uh, but definitely made a point of saying that they were going to remand the Bellator lawsuit back to the lower court or a different court, and that it was still certainly possible that Rampage was going to be found in breach of his contract. Uh, and, you know, if that happens, he's definitely going to owe Bellator some money, and I don't know if that he would be allowed to go on fighting in the UFC. So, like, now you're into this weird situation. Like, do you try to book Rampage a second fight after you sort of thumbed your nose at, at Bellator and the law by booking him the first one? Or, like, do you kind of sit back now and, and wait to see how this plays out? Yeah, that's a good question. I was really uh, interested in how, like, when asked, uh, I believe, by Ariel Helwani afterwards uh, about Rampage's future and Dana White kind of kind of laughed a little bit and said, oh, yeah, I know he's got some some legal stuff to sort out <laughs> as if like, hey, your problem now, asshole. Like, you know, you, you got to figure this stuff out now. We got what we needed. Uh, I don't know, man. It does seem like. If if you believe the UFC's claim that like they were just kind of hoodwinked and all this, like that they thought Rampage was free and clear to negotiate with them, and then they were very disappointed to find out that uh, it might be otherwise, then you would think that they would have to sit back and let this all play out, right? Like, how do you just go about continuing to to book him when you don't know if he's going to show up? Um, and then at the same time, I mean, maybe you think, hey, what if he does get sent back to Bellator? Why not throw him on a few cards here or there to to try and squeeze whatever we can out of his name value before the fight? And uh, and what's the worst that happens? You you lose a rampage fight off of one of these future cards. I don't know, man. I mean, the whole thing it it just seems like uh, still baffling to me that like when you watch Rampage Jackson in the cage against Fabio Maldonado and you just think like this is the guy. 
I mean, I know it's not really about him so much. It's about like two organizations trying to figure out where the, the limits of each other's contracts are and stuff like that. But this is the guy? That's the guy we 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 got to go to court over? Fucking Rampage? At this point in his life? It just seems like like the MMA gods are just laughing at us, Chad. How about this, though? We got away with it once. If it turns out that there's an opening at the top of the card at UFC 187, let's do Rampage Jackson against Anthony Johnson. Cruiserweight belt on the line. If we need somebody to fill in for John Jones. Because then we'll get some definitive answers about whether or not Rampage is going to get to stick around in the UFC. Then, then your your uh, well, whatever it was that Bellator tried to claim gross damages or whatever unprecedented damages. Then you then you might have a conversation on your hands. Guy's going to go out and fight the number one contender in a main event fight. You know that one. I don't. I feel like don't even bother with the cruiserweight stuff. You know, if you do a, a Rampage Jackson Rumble Johnson fight, that's that's a come as you are fight. Just show up, whatever you're doing, heavyweight, straight up heavyweight, just open weight. Oh, open weight. Yeah. In case, in case Anthony Johnson wanted to come in at 170. Yeah. He could if he wanted to. Or in case, like, you know, Rampage comes in at 310 pounds. Don't act like it couldn't happen. Yeah. If you, well, if you're the UFC and you feel like you are eventually perhaps going to have to ship Rampage Jackson back to Bellator, do you book him another fight against a Fabio Maldonado type who the, as you said, is tailor made to like kind of make Rampage look good? Or do you book him a fight against someone where, oh, I don't know, man, they might be Rampage. I would think maybe it would want you would like if you thought that he might have to go back to Bellator, wouldn't you want to? You'd want him to lose, you'd right? You'd want to have him look like damaged goods. Yeah, first. Ex- absolutely. It's, yeah, I mean that might be a consideration. I was kind of hoping that Bellator had uh, a tweet saved in its drafts that just in case Rampage lost to Maldonado, where they could tweet out and just be like, you know what, UFC, we decided you can have him. <laughs> like that would have been a dope move, but not that Bellator would have done it since. Bellator tries to play it a little bit more low key over there, a little bit, a little bit more, more Scott Coker style. Yeah, but uh, that would have been a, been an awesome move. I wish that things could have played out differently, so we might have seen it whether or not that would happen. Uh, do you have anything more you want to say about Rampage or Fabio? Didn't Fabio Maldonado roll into this fight with a new nickname, like the Hillbilly of Steel or something like that in Portuguese? What? Look it up. See if he see if it's listed on his Wikipedia oh, page. God damn it, Hillbilly of Steel is what you're saying. I thought that they said he had a like a nickname. It was something in Portuguese. Somebody sent us a, uh, an email about it. I might have missed to the that podcast. because I was battling with the Apple TV. Yeah, we missed part. a lot of stuff on the UFC 186 oh, no. broadcast. Uh, Wikipedia is some stuff in Portuguese, and they translate it as the Iron Hillbilly. The Iron Hillbilly. That's better than the Hillbilly of Steel. I don't know, man. They're both pretty good. Anyway, <laughs> that's gonna do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. We're still dealing with a fairly fluid situation in the saga of UFC light heavyweight champion John Jones and a possible uh, hit and run and hit and run charges that may be levied against him soon. At, at the moment, we know that a rental car that was believed to have been rented by John Jones or at least contained some paperwork belonging to John Jones uh, was in an accident with a, a pregnant woman in her mid-20s. 
uh, I believe on what, Sunday morning, about 1130 Sunday morning in Albuquerque, a, a man was allegedly seen fleeing the, the scene of the accident by an off-duty Albuquerque police officer. They believe that man to have been John Jones, although we, we don't really have any confirmation on very much of anything at this point. The latest news before we started recording this uh, is that due to the injuries suffered by the woman, she's believed to be okay but had a broken arm, uh, that that injury could escalate possible charges against John Jones from the misdemeanor variety to the felony variety, which obviously makes this seem a little bit more serious for Jones. That doesn't mean that Jones will end up getting charged with a felony or or will have to go to court for a felony, but that it just means that possibility exists. Uh, I don't know where to start with this one, man. Like, I assume whatever we think the news is, it will change just before we're supposed to publish the podcast. Yeah, so, uh, that's a given. That's a given. Whatever we talk about now will immediately become outdated information by the time we get this posted. Um, by then, you know, maybe the whole thing will have turned out to be a hilarious misunderstanding. You'd think, you'd hope so, right? Um, or, uh, John Jones will have gone all Harrison Ford and dyed his hair and, uh, gone off searching for the real culprit. Who knows? Okay. So as it stands today, we believe, we have to believe that John Jones and possibly an attorney will turn themselves into the Albuquerque police today. And if that happens, then I feel like we're dealing with a fairly run-of-the-mill legal situation here. Uh, if that does not happen, then we're dealing with something much stranger, right? Yes. Well, to me, it's already strange that he hasn't turned himself in already. Like, this has gone on long enough. Don't you think? Like, that's the thing that makes it... It has, but it's not strange to me. If, if, if you were in a hit-and-run accident and you're a famous person... Like, uh, unless it gets to the point where like a warrant is issued for your arrest and a manhunt begins, uh, searching for you, like it could actually behoove you to put some distance between yourself and a hit and run accident that you were involved in, depending on the circumstances of, of what was happening. You're like, saying depending on what you might have to get out of your system is what you're saying. You said it, brother, not me. Like if, I mean, you're if saying he's in a motel somewhere just chugging Gatorade. He's drinking a lot of water or something. Like, and let's just say there's no evidence here just to, to suggest that John Jones was drunk or that John Jones was on any sort of hard drugs. There was a, a, a marijuana pipe and some marijuana reportedly found in his car. You're not allowed to do that, by the way. What's Did that? you know that legally? Like smoke marijuana and drive? You're not. I don't know if you know this. No, but there's you might no. Need to make some changes. There's no evidence to suggest to that the that. guy had smoked marijuana and was driving. Like I have a feeling you pull over most 27 year olds in America. Maybe 25 percent of them has a weed pipe in his car, and that's not even professional athletes. Like <laughs> then you're probably dealing with a much higher percentage. Uh, so like you know, if you're John Jones, you put a 24 hour buffer zone between yourself and this accident. Like that, the only thing that's going to do, as long as you show up on time with your attorney and turn yourself in, like the only thing that really does is is limits the stuff that the the state can prove about you. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess maybe the thing that seems kind of disturbing about it now is that we have not. It doesn't seem like anybody's really heard from John Jones. Yeah, no, that part is weird, and that's why we're standing by waiting to find out if the guy actually turns himself in today. Uh, and if he does, I would think from a legal standpoint, my gut tells me that that this will be a a significant thing for John Jones, but that that this isn't going to be 
earth shaking that this isn't going to end his career that he's not going to see the inside of a of a prison cell or anything like that the no. thing to me that this means and you know i i had a discussion earlier today with jonathan snowden another lead writer at bleacher report and he kind of made this point and i agree with him that like uh, this just, you know, this doesn't necessarily seem earth shattering from a legal standpoint, but from a personal standpoint, this is just another piece of evidence that adds to sort of a generalized foreboding about the John Jones story and how, you know, the more we find out about stuff like this, uh, the more it seems possible that the John Jones, uh, story does not eventually someday reach a positive end. Yeah. And that is the thing we were kind of talking about this earlier, right? Like, the it's the little human touches on this story from what we've heard so far it's not just like the hit and run but like hitting a pregnant woman one thing taking off on foot there's another one that that where the weirder the story gets the more interested people get and not in a way that is good for john jones stopping after running away from the car according to the eyewitness coming back and grabbing a handful of cash out of the car and then leaving behind your weed um, stuff in the cash in his pants and then running off again all without checking to see how the, the, the woman in the car is doing. Um, those are the little things where like when you start to hear them and it's like they, they make the story just bizarre enough um, and just disturbing enough for people to really feel like they can sink their teeth into it. Also, I was thinking of this. I was reading in the New York Times and it was, a, I think, an AP report um, about John Jones, but, you know, where they're – they're talking about what happened and then doing the obligatory filling people in on who John Jones is and what he's been up to lately. And when you start to to see it all laid out in that just AP format, like, all right, John, he was arrested in 2012 after crashing his Bentley into a telephone pole in Binghamton, New York. Had his driver's license suspended last August. Mr. Jones and challenger Daniel Cormier were involved in a brawl in the lobby of the MGM Grand Casino while appearing at a promotional event. In early December, Mr. Jones tested positive for metabolites of cocaine while training for his bout. Uh, checked himself in the – spent just one day in a drug rehabilitation center before checking himself out. Like if you are just a person reading the New York Times and coming across the story and, and forming an opinion, this starts to paint a picture for you. And maybe it's one that we don't see exactly the same way because we we hear more John Jones news than just this stuff and have like it's it's part of a broader narrative of the John Jones story in our minds. But when you kind of see it all like in bullet point form like this, you're like, oh, wait a minute. We do seem to be leading in a certain direction here. Yeah. And specifically as it relates to this situation, my gut still tells me if he turns himself in with his lawyer, that this thing gets pleaded down to a misdemeanor and it turns out to be kind of not a big deal. But you're right about the bullet points. I think in a larger sense, we're starting to get a much clearer picture that John Jones sort of needs to get his shit together. It seems like, you know, regardless of, of specifically what was going on that led to this accident today, it seems like enough already, man. Like, if you haven't learned by now, I don't know what it's going to take to to uh, put you on the straight and narrow, so to speak. Well, and who would have thought that you know twenty minutes in rehab wouldn't be enough to to address maybe uh, some some lifestyle problems? I mean, I guess the big question though is now, like, say you know you're the UFC, they're obviously going to be pulling their hair out over this one. Uh, they're waiting, I'm sure, to see how, exactly how it's going to play out. I like that you know. Chad Dundas Esquire is very comforting and feels like it's all going to be no big deal in the end. Uh, do you pull him from the fight card now? I, no. I mean, the fight's the fight's in a month. Yeah. I, I would be astonished. Like, 
I'm going to go provide some more of my legal expertise here. But like if this happened, if John Jones pleads down and this is just a misdemeanor, he got into a car wreck. I would be astonished if the UFC pulls him out of the fight. Like, but one of the interesting questions here is, you know, not necessarily how this ends up legally for John Jones, but like the UFC does have that code of conduct now that, that it is says it's going to abide by. And this is certainly not John Jones's first transgression and, and like not his, not even like out of character for him as it has, as it relates to, you know, recently, this will be his, his, so, you know, second or third transgression. So it'll be interesting to see what the UFC does. I would think in a strictly like moralistic sense, it would might think about pulling him out of the card. But like in practice, a month out from UFC 187 with uh, when you already had this UFC 186 flop because you had to scratch a championship fight. I think we see John Bones Jones in the corner come May 23rd, brother. Well, I think. Wow. What a promo The the just awkward ambivalent brother, brother at the end really really it's how it works it. right you yeah. say brother at the end uh i mean i think for one thing if, if there's a card that could afford to lose a fight i guess it would be ufc 187 you still got uh weidman belfort nermi donald cerrone uh travis brown andre olowski joseph benavidez john moraga and then you bump up maybe john dodson or, or and zach mccoskey or something like that or you know the Rose Namajunas and Nina Ansarov, like, or, or even Uriah Hall and Rafael Nassau. You can kind of do whatever you want there, and it's still a pretty good card, especially compared to what we've seen recently. I just wonder, like, if you're the UFC, you do have to ask yourself, like, is this what we need right now? We've been kind of going through some rough times, and now we're going to be like, all right, next big pay-per-view, title fight, the dude who just hit a pregnant woman with his car and then ran off and then came back to get some cash and then ran off again. Like... I don't know, man. I don't know if that's what you really need people saying about you right about now. Then again, you know, it doesn't seem like the UFC has always been uh, too concerned with yeah, that. Yeah, when has that ever been a concern before? Never. All right. Well, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with this. It's still a lot of speculation. Let's do uh, just saying stuff, Ben, and then you know, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, since, as long as we're talking about John Jones, you know, I, I heard about this last night, uh, and the way I heard about it, I was sitting around watching Game of Thrones with my wife, like you do on Sunday night. Uh, the phone buzzes, I look at it, an email from the UFC with a link to like their, their statement on John Jones, um, and I read their statement, we are aware that the Albuquerque Police Department is interested in speaking to John Jones regarding his possible involvement in a motor vehicle accident. We are in the process of gathering facts and will reserve further comment until more information is available. Chad, I'm just saying when your employer puts out a statement about you that refers to something like a car crash as a motor vehicle accident, nothing good has happened. Nope. Could have been a boat wreck just, for all we know I'm from that just statement. Saying. John Jones crashed his helicopter into a golf cart. Possible involvement in a motor vehicle motor accident. vehicle accident. Well, Ben, this week, I'm just saying, I feel like if we're being really honest, at least some of the fun in watching an MMA event is seeing what special brand of unexpected chaos and hilarity will break out during any given television broadcast. This week, it happened to come in the form of a close-up of Fabio Maldonado's feet as the light heavyweight contender had to take a seat on the octagon stairs for, uh, I guess you would say, an impromptu pedicure when it was deemed that his toenails were too long uh, to take the cage against Quentin Rampage Jackson. We can moan, I suppose, and complain about how it was gross uh, and 
we could just sit back and chuckle at uh, UFC color commentator Joe Rogan calling the incident, and I quote, disgusting and a travesty, end quote. Or we could kind of admit that part of the reason that we like this sport is that ridiculous, stupid, farcical stuff like this happens just about every damn weekend, and we kind of dig it. I'm just saying. Just saying. Travesty. Just a travesty. You know what I thought was weird, though? Like. Why do you check a guy's fingernails and toenails the instant before he's going to take the cage? <laughs> like, he's there all day, man. He's been there all week. You could have checked Fabio Maldonado's toenails on, like, Thursday and been like, yeah, we're going to shorten those up. Because once you cut them, <laughs> once you cut them, like, he's, he can't cheat and grow them back real fast, man. You know, you could do that at any point. Not, not at the final moment before he's about to take the cage in front of God and everybody. <laughs> Perhaps they're worried that during the walkout, he might have got something, like, lodged in his toenail or something that could become a hazard in the cage. It's possible. Also, like, did we really think that Fabio Maldonado's feet were going to come anywhere near Quentin Rampage Jackson's face? <laughs> come on, man. Well, maybe if Rampage knocked him down and he went for an upkick. I guess, hey, that's a good point. I hadn't Boom. considered that. The action is quite nuanced and diverse yeah. in, a, in a mixed rules fighting bout. So I guess you got to take every precaution. That's going to do it for the Co-Main Event Podcast this week. We'll be back next week to maybe update this whole John Jones thing and look ahead, I believe, to UFC Fight Night 65, which will be uh, the first or second weekend in May. I don't know. We'll figure it out, and uh, we'll get back to you on that. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So when Chad Dundas' attorney at law shows up to, to comfort the, no the, case too small. the wayward kids and tell them that everything is going to be fine, do you, do you dress like this? So like this t-shirt and jeans? This plain green t-shirt that looks like something old people only wear under other clothes. This is, I believe, American apparel. This is some high-class shit. You do this to put them in.